The word most employees appreciate in their leaders is care. They need to know that you care. And if you don't care, you need to look at what's going on in you. Dr. Drew, an addiction medicine specialist and TV host. He's here to talk about how leaders can bring out the best in everyone, including themselves. The Brilliant People podcast is brought to you by Assertitude, an executive search firm recruiting leaders for companies undergoing transformation. I'm Jacqueline DiChiara. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Brilliant People podcast. I'm Kevin O'Neill, founder and managing partner at Assertitude. I'm here with my friend, David Drupinski. So our audience is mostly senior executives who run organizations going through large transformations or those people on the path to become a senior executive doing that. What advice might you give through the lens of your experience to this demographic? How do they best support their teams? How do they encourage the right behaviors in their organizations to ensure that people are, are allowed to become brilliant at what they do. Yeah. I, I know most people in positions of leadership have heard lots of different hypotheses about how to do this. The word most employees appreciate in their leaders is care. They need to know that you care. And if you don't care, you need to look at what's going on in you. And by the same token, if you're moving up the ladder the thing you need to take care of the most is you, because the burnout and the ability to be so distressed as you move into higher levels of authority and responsibility is to lose that capacity. It's a natural thing, right? But you, you must cultivate the capacity to care. And part of caring really is being there. And just being present is something we call a boundary and not being overtaken by whatever's going on in your group or the individuals amongst the group, and also not catching it. It's not a contagious experience. You are there, you are present. And then once you're there, being able to hold a frame, if this is a concept that, that is meaningful to you, I think, I think one of the behaviors you will see, and you probably are well aware of, that is part of holding a frame is to see splitting behaviors when they develop, right? And splitting behaviors, if you don't know, is where which is something children do. And there's a lot of underdeveloped people out there these days who maintain sort of primitive kinds of strategies, projection, you know, they see their own negative feelings on other people's, a lot of that these days, and then splitting, which is mommy, daddy will let me get that. Daddy says no to the ice cream. And then it's mommy, I'd like an ice cream. Daddy says, I can't have it or whatever, just splitting one against the other, splitting mommy and daddy. And when you're in a position of authority, you will see lots of splitting behaviors and they usually develop at times of distress. So you've got to kind of look at why, why splitting has developed, right? Because splitting is very destructive. It will create chaos. And if you have an individual who is repeatedly engaged in splitting behavior, that's something that you should have some solutions for, whether it's education or individual interventions for someone, uh, or maybe it's moving somebody to a different uh, position. So it's, again, caring, holding, being able to, you know, let people know that you're holding the, the, the organization in your, in your caring, and then looking for the things that tear it apart. And splitting behavior is the most obvious thing. And splitting can be dealt with, but it's got to be dealt with, again, with that firm hand of holding 
And with specific awareness, you've got to constantly be on top of just spending a, a few minutes showing up for another person is caring. As one of my mentors said many years ago, you can pretend to care. You can't pretend to show up. So it's about right. showing up, right? Being right. present. That's right. So Dr. Drew, you're currently running a thriving medical practice, actually still seeing and treating patients while having simultaneously cultivated an extraordinarily successful media career. How did you do this? I've never been satisfied doing one thing. And I've always been interested in creating and exploring and doing things that perhaps other people might not be interested or be afraid to do. Early in my career, I took very seriously in early 1980s, but when Anthony Fauci was telling us young physicians, which to get out there and educate about HIV and AIDS, I was deep into the AIDS epidemic, treating patients hand over fist, one of the darkest periods of history for whom there's no one left behind to tell you that story other than those of us there fighting on the front lines. But I had an opportunity to go on the radio in the middle of the night one week and thought, okay, Fauci's telling us to go talk about this. I got to do it and was blown away by what I was seeing, that there were the young people were coming to radio to ask their most important health questions. And I thought, I, I've got to keep coming back. And it sort of fit with who I was. I like public speaking. I like doing different things. And I just kind of kept doing it for the next 10 years, one night a week. I thought I was doing community service. I thought this was just a way to get information out and do some public education. I was working 20 hours a day for a couple of decades. And I had three careers going simultaneously in medicine. I, I was a bad, severe workaholic. I suddenly found myself with uh, multiple television programs and a radio show at the middle of the night. So I was doing celebrity rehab. I was doing a talk show on HLN. I was doing a daytime talk show for the CW network. And I had Love Line at night. And so I was getting up at six in the morning. I was getting done at midnight. And I had to look in the mirror and say, okay, you're officially now doing television it's okay. You can let go of the psychiatry stuff. You can let go of some of the inpatient medicine. And then since then, I've been more focused on media and other things. And what that did was really free me. I was just so intent upon being the perfect physician and really fulfilling that role and doing it 24-7. And I was able to move away from that a little bit and say, it's okay. You, you did it. You did it for decades. You can try some other things. And that's where I sort of opened to other creative ideas. I started thinking about business opportunities. I started thinking about digital and social media. And I'm, I'm exploring everything now. My goal always in every platform is do good, have a little fun, and hopefully make some money doing it. That's it. That, those are my goals. So let's talk more about addiction. It's, it's a topic that affects almost everyone, either directly or a member of their family or a yeah. coworker or a friend. What is the impact of the pandemic on, on addiction medicine okay. or, the, or the disease in general? All right. It's a, it's a, it's a massive topic to, to contemplate what has happened to the process of humans and their relationship with substances because of the pandemic. So I loosely will use the term addiction. I've done it my whole career. I don't believe it's stigmatizing, but we have changed our terminology now where we call this substance use disorders. It's become a complicated landscape. So we've been encouraged during this pandemic, all of us to live like drug addicts, isolate, don't socialize, hide, shelter in place. These are the most heinous instructions you can give to human beings. It is destructive to their mental health. It's especially destructive to people with addictive disorders. They will use and they will die. On top of that, we have laws in states like California where you're free to use, 
with no consequence. You can, you can traffic with no consequence and you can steal to support your habit. I'm not interested in criminalizing my patients. That's for sure. I'm interested in creating forces that motivate them to get treatment without which the brain disease and the, what we call anosognosia, which is the block in the ability to see what's happening to your life and your body as a result of the addiction. That is something that's a neurological process that literally blocks insight. I'm not talking about denial. I'm talking about a literal inability to have insight to what's happening. That's, that's the nature of these serious mental illnesses. We are privileging anosognosia and allowing that to kill people. I wake up every day exercised about this. It just drives me crazy. So we are in the middle of a massive uptick in use, overdose, a fentanyl is taking over in the streets. Fentanyl is replacing you know, almost every product you get your hands on if you, if you buy illicit substances. People are inadvertently overdosing at an extraordinary rate. We're at 90,000 for the last 12 months or so. And it's breaking my heart. I know exactly what to do to, to change these things. And we seem to have no desire to do any of it. In fact, even in my profession, we are sort of giving up on the idea that people can recover and we're just using what's called harm avoidance exclusively, which is giving an opiate addict a new kind of opiate that doesn't have the same pharmacology to sort of eh, dampen their behaviors and hopefully get them off things eventually, but uh, really no intent of a full flourishing life, which is what got me into addiction medicine in the first place. I watched people, young people go from dying to better than they ever knew they could be. And I, I didn't know what was happening at the beginning. I was like, I want to be a part of that. I mean, in, in general medicine, you generally go from dying to acute, chronically ill. <laughs> and these were people going from dying to extraordinary. And it was so thrilling to see that. We don't train physicians to do that anymore. We sort of abandon it. Across the epidemic, across the pandemic also, We've closed down mutual aid societies and 12-step meetings, and we thankfully had Zoom meetings for a while, and those worked better than I expected. I really did, because I believe bodies and space are a necessary feature of the fellowship, the support, the emotional regulation that people have to build to manage their addictive disease. And uh, much to my amazement, the Zoom meetings worked for about nine months. And then as I figured, their efficacy sort of burned out. People sort of started withdrawing from them the kind of communications that our bodies have that we're not aware of is a fascinating area for me, but you can't do that really through Zoom. And now people are falling out, old timers are relapsing, it's a damn mess. And on top of that, as my psychiatric colleagues tell me when I'm asking them how are things going, anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression, it's just out of control, suicide up. And one of the most tender populations that is being most affected is about the eight to 15 year old group who's life trajectories may have been permanently altered by this experience. So we have this confluence of events. The message that we're receiving is isolate, you know, stay away from people. Imagine you're say 13 to 15, your prime years for developing sort of an understanding of socialization and peer groups and how to navigate. We're isolating them from that. Then we're telling them, if you go near one of your peers, you're going to kill your grandmother. It's like, like, can you imagine a better recipe for social anxiety? I can't navigate. They're a source of death and destruction. Well, now what do I do? It's awful. Wow. Are, are you optimistic? I, I am eternally optimistic. I, I am a, a cheerleader for humanity. And I, I do believe we have an uncanny way of making our way through things. And this is no different. And you'll notice there's a pent-up demand for socialization, for togetherness. It's really kind of extraordinary. People want to be around other human beings. It's a necessary feature of meaning and purpose and, and joy in life. Joy, to me, the word joy 
is shared. It's a shared positive affect where it's mutually amplifying. And we can't amplify and regulate our emotions isolated or through Zoom. We just can't do it. And so you see people now have pent up demand for the spectrum of what we're going to see in terms of people wanting to get out and in the world and move about and travel is going to be rather extraordinary. I I don't know that I'm predicting a roaring 20s. I know some people are doing that. I'm not quite there yet, but I do believe it will be different and, and there will be a greater appreciation for the things we have and we can do. And I also believe that as we move about, we will have changed our behavior vis-a-vis infectious diseases. I think we'll be using different kinds of sanitizing material. I think we'll be using UVC light. I think we'll expect different sorts of ventilation when we're in on a cruise ship or in an airplane. And that will be a net positive. I know people are concerned that the, the sewer rat theory, that if we don't expose people to enough pathogens, their immune system won't develop. I, I don't think that's a big deal. I think that's mostly early in life anyway. And trust me, they go to kindergarten, they get exposed to plenty of pathogens. If you've raised a kindergartner, you, you, you've been exposed to a lot of that stuff. Something about uh, a peck of dirt, right? Uh, and that, and you, you know what they bring home. You're, you were sick the whole time they were six to eight or three to six, especially. You hear people talking about the workplace being forever changed, which I do think is true. But I do believe that we're going to appreciate time in groups, togetherness, how we communicate. I think all that's going to become more efficient and, and again, evolve. This is a evolutionary pressure, right? This is nature forcing us to evolve a bit. And part of evolution for the human being is not just the epigenetics and, and genetics, it's behavioral and neurobiological. It's adapting to the environment. And we generally move in a good direction when there are evolutionary pressures upon us. So if there's someone in our audience who's listening today, who is feeling isolated as a result of the pandemic, they don't know necessarily where to turn or what to do. And perhaps they're acting out behaviorally, whether it be through substance abuse or social media addiction, or they've given up their exercise regimen or their diet has kind of fallen by the wayside. What advice might you give that person right now? So the general advice, if you are trying to change behavior that's difficult to change, is don't go it alone. That's not the way our brains work. Whether it's a coach or a therapist or mutual aid society, somebody needs to be there helping you motivate and stay on track and then regulate our emotions as we give up these things or start these things that we have difficulty doing. So don't go it alone. The access to all sorts of mental health resources online has expanded dramatically. And again, much to my amazement, they've been deployed to great effect. So don't go it alone. Secondly, you've got to make a decision to change. Change making is hard. We have a mythology in this country that's, hey, just, I'm going to decide what I need to change and I'm going to do that. No, humans do not change. As someone, I, you know, that's why working is the field of change. I'm trying to get people who are dying of drug addiction and they know it to stop doing this thing they want to stop doing and cannot. It's hard. So, and you go through stages before you get to the point where you really are ready to change, pre-contemplative, contemplative planning. And so you have to get to the point where you decide that's it. On this day, at this hour, I am starting, I'm changing direction. And there's an internal shift that goes along with that. If you really aren't serious about it, you, you'll know, but you got to get yourself ready. And again, sometimes getting yourself ready is just talking to other people, thinking about it, talking about it, planning it, but make a decision. And this is the time that I change it. Now, once you decide that Wednesday at three is when you change, I don't want to say it's the easy part, 
but it's easier than what comes next, which is sustaining the change. It's maintenance. Change requires maintenance. And that's another piece that generally you can't go that one alone either. We drift away or we let go. I mean, think how many New Year's resolutions get kept. I mean, people decide that's the day I'm going to change. They start it and they don't sustain it. People don't plan for the maintenance phase of change. In many ways, the hardest part, I think one of the reasons it's extra super hard is people in this country aren't aware of it. They don't aware how difficult change is because they feel like they, they can choose it. They're free to do it and they do it. And then they don't understand why it doesn't continue. You have to have help with maintenance many times or, or some sort of structure around maintenance, right? Whether it is journaling or holding yourself accountable at certain dates, there's got to be a certain amount of structure and support to maintain a change. What about uh, you know, ritualizing things, you know, yoga, meditation practices, prayer for those? So, who, uh, so I, I love that. And for people like you and me, that that's easy, right? But generally, it needs to be rewarding in some fashion. You need to like it. It needs to move you in a direction that you're feeling good. You know, in recovery from alcoholism or addiction, we always say, you know, go till you want to go. And that it always comes. It always comes. But there's a period where it can be more difficult when you're getting establishing the habit. You know, Aristotle talked about character, right? I mean, we don't talk about habits that much. We've started talking about it in the last couple of years, I noticed. But Aristotle talked about it, you know, a thousand years ago, which is that habit establishes character and habit takes repetition. And we are set up in our brains such a way that once we establish habits, and it takes a long time, six months plus to establish habits, they tend to stick and they help contribute to character. And that by itself, building character, building a, a sense of uh, mastery and competence may be enough reward to keep it going. Let's say uh, you're in an organization where you're personally doing fine, but you notice one of your coworkers, your colleagues, a family member seemingly struggling, their yeah. behaviors have changed. Perhaps they seem like they're in a dark place. Americans generally don't want to get into people's business, uh, particularly those you know come from the coast, kind of the urban dwellers. We let people live and let live and, and yeah. so forth. But how might you recommend we address those issues, do it in such a way that we don't do more harm than good? Right. People are worried that they're going to hurt someone by evoking, you know, whatever's happening there. And the other thing they fear is triggering righteous indignation, which addicts and alcoholics will use. I think it's hysterical. You prepare, prepare for righteous indignation. And just to me, it's like, I always laugh. My, my approach is when they start pushing back real hard, it's come on, man. I, well, first of all, who are you talking to? First of all, when it's me. So righteous indignation is just no, it's just think funny in your head. It will change your relationship with that defense. The other thing is do not walk on eggshells. Walking on eggshells is a huge mistake. That's how people die because everyone around them walks on eggshells. They are not better off because you're tiptoeing around avoiding uh, triggering either defense or pain. Now, you may not have time to do these things. I understand that. Or you may not want to do them. And that's fine. You don't have to do it. But... Again, caring, back to that word of care, is an important piece of all of our lives. Being of service to other people is, is critically important, especially when, it's, when you're serving one other human being. It's quite renewing. So, so I urge you to do it. And, and here's some technical ways to approach. Direct. Do not get into you sorts of accusations or complaints. What you need to develop is something called therapeutic wonderment. 
I've noticed, I'm wondering, even though if you know the answer, just stay with, gosh, are you okay? Is of course a nice open-ended question, or can I help you in any way? And you won't get too far with that. But something very specific, like I've noticed you're you're late to work. Are you okay? Or I'm wondering, those kinds of words have really great capacity. You'll be shocked at how people just are grateful and unload. Now, then once the opening occurs and something comes back to you, you have no obligation to fix. In fact, the instinct to fix is probably not good. Your job, once again, is just to be there, to be present, to listen actively, and just reflect back an appreciation of what that person is telling you. That sounds awful. Oh my gosh. Oh goodness. Or have you thought about changing that? Just again, more questions, 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 and wonderment will get you a long way as opposed to you're always late to work. What are we going to do about this? That's not going to go so well. Now you may need to do that if you're in a position of leadership and specifically you may have made a decision. You're not going to get into that with them and you can refer that to someone who can help them. And it's up to the individual to get that help. And you're under no obligation to make sure people uh, engage in their mental health. You can only encourage it. You can't fix people. You can't rescue them or else you end up with eternal victims that need rescuing the rest of their lives. So Dr. Drew, what I'm hearing you say is that if someone is in the grip of addiction or depression and we reach out and show that therapeutic wonderment, we're not going to break them. No, you're not going to break. You may not know what to do. and, And I don't expect people to know what to do. And that's okay. Ideally, let's say it's a substance thing, you want to get them over to a mutual aid society, you want to get them if they're depressed to proper care, much like if they were talking to you about, you know, abdominal pain, we, we should not treat what goes on in our cranium any differently, it goes on inside our thorax. It's, a, it's an organ, it has issues, it gets sick, there's medical treatment. Let's get on with it. Let's let's get that treatment. Anything else is stigmatizing. It really drives me crazy that we we tiptoe around issues around the brain or that we treat the medical record differently. It's just it's just nuts to me. It's just an organ, just like if you had chest pain or a cardiac arrhythmia. So let's uh, pivot back and talk more about your career and how you got into this unique place. Where do you see the place that you're able to provide the most meaningful so, impact? Or, yeah. so. so my entire career has really been an improvisation and a creation. And, and I love creating. So for me to say, here's where I'm going, it's a little tough for me. I'm someone who more goes through doors as I come upon them and see what's inside and see what I can do with it to make it meaningful, to make things better. Since the pandemic, I got very interested in helping businesses. I would like to help businesses. I've got lots of platforms from which to promote products if there are products that do good, make a difference. I also am interested in being part of business cultures and adjusting them and helping them be healthier. I'm interested in helping the individuals within businesses, whether it's people in leadership or those that they're, for whom they're responsible, identify and refer and understand the conditions that are so common amongst all of us. Let's put it this way. I don't even know the full improvisation yet. I I don't quite know what it looks like, but I feel like I could really help some businesses expand in ways that they might be surprised. I, I think as a brand, as somebody who's interested in offering people things that are good for them and change things in a positive direction, to me, that's a perfect relationship with things that are out there that are trying to find a place, an audience, a market, that whereby I can, I can help do that. 
so it's it's hard for me to say because because so much of what I have done is an improvisation. I remember in uh, like 1992, somebody said to me, he was at visiting me on the radio and I was doing radio every night at that point. He goes, well, what do you want to do in 10 years? And I thought, well, I'm certainly not going to be on the radio. I don't know. I'll be, you know, I'll be doing medicine. And I did that radio show for 35 years. So, so it's hard for me to predict where I, I did not foresee. I did not have a blueprint for television or digital, but I, I like that. I like being able to improvise, to create things that really didn't exist before uh, and see what they can do to have an impact in a, in a positive direction. So what do you think defines brilliant people at work? So brilliant people, again, I keep hearkening back to Aristotle and his notion of eudaimonia. His, he had this idea that, that to have a, we translated as happiness, that that was the ultimate reason for the human life. And it turns out we mistranslated that. He, he really meant flourishing or, or having a full well-being, a, a good existence. And that is necessarily other people. It's necessarily being around for serving other people. That's where a good life comes from. May not always be happy in the sense of hedonic happiness, like like euphoria, but it's satisfying because it's a good life. But here's the other point, which is that he pointed out that to really be able to do this, you had to have something he called techne, which is skill, and phronesis, which is wisdom. And so the point that I take away is you have to educate yourself. You have to have a broad range of experiences and you have to bring that into the fullest extent to the present. And you have to be fully present as a human being to actualize these things. So it's preparation, it's presence. And it's back to that word I mentioned at the beginning, which is caring. And, and then the other things for me tend to take care of themselves because I tend to be inspired at that point. But the preparation and the education and the experience is the part that we tend to leave out of our conversations about this. And, and that is the important thing. It's, it's what you bring, not just who you are, right? That's an important piece of course and what your constitutional makeup is important, but it is that training and experience that you bring forward in a creative improvisation. That's where the magic happens. That's where new things evolve. And that's where you can make a real difference. So perhaps to go back a bit and you know, encapsulate what you just shared, what three adjectives, in your view, best describe brilliant leaders? Well, I've used one repeatedly, so it's, it's getting old now, but caring. So for me, it's, it's judgment. And it's, I'm going to try to think, uh, how, how many words do I get? Three? You get three. I get three. All right. Judgment is not a word we use enough. All that phronesis and skill that you bring forward is what gives you your judgment. So we're going to put, we're going to embed skill, experience, training into judgment. Okay. That's behind judgment. Caring, I've been talking about nonstop. So judgment, caring, and, oh, I, I know a word popped into my head. I think I'm going to use it. And that would be inspiration. If you're inspired in what you're doing, meaning you're connected to your spontaneous impulses, not only will you continue to sustain in an inspired way, you will inspire others. They're very unrelated terms, but I think each of them are necessary. Caring, judgment, inspiration. Wonderful. So what are you reading right now? What are you listening to? What are you using to draw inspiration for yourself? So I read a lot and I'm looking at a book sitting across from me, which is Bobby Fisher teaches chess. <laughs> I'm reading a book about Churchill during the Blitzkrieg. What else is around? I'm reading a book about physics and the, the source of uh, 
derivation of probabilities from from entropy. I just get interested in stuff and I just start reading. I read a lot of history and a lot of biographies. Uh, I can tell you the book that's had the greatest influence on me recently was uh, Frederick Douglass's biography, The New One. I, uh, seeing the world through his eyes was deeply meaningful to me. And that I hadn't seen it before was sort of, mm, I should have. I should have. Wonderful. Are you a podcast listener? Crazy. Nutty. But, but you want to hear my podcast? Yeah, I'd love to see your list. All right. My list is Econ Talk. Sean Carroll's Mindscape, You Are Not So Smart, Rationally Speaking, Science of Success, Inquiring Minds, Brain Science, Making Sense, a Philosophy for Our Times, Joe Rogan I listen to sometimes. But I listen to a lot of, uh, and Sean Carroll's a physicist at Caltech, and he just does the greatest interviews. You know, I feel grateful that I'm the kind of person that likes to work out, so I do it every, every, every day. I, it's just an, a part of my my day, even if it's just 20 minutes. But I also, when I'm doing it, I'm, I'm listening to podcasts. Podcasting has become kind of a force multiplier. You can listen to podcasts while you're doing other things, whether you're working out, whether well, you're you know, making it, dinner. and Right. It, it, right. The audio, you forget that you can, multi, you can do other things while you're listening to podcasts and absorb it. I'm an audio learner, but iTunes U, I don't know if you know about that. That existed for a couple of years where you could drop yeah. in on lectures from all over the world. That was amazing. I knew nothing about Egypt. And I tried to, I got into that pretty deep for a while, trying to understand what, what the hell humans were doing down there. So Dr. Drew, if, if you were tapped by our prior president to lead the, the country's COVID response, yeah. what would you do that has been done and what might you have done differently? Yeah. Uh, so you're talking about at a, at a federal level. I'm at a national right. level trying to you are the You are the czar. I would do a lot of the education from the, I guess, the press room or the White House. Understanding medicine is an evolving clinical experience where we will get things wrong. I will get things wrong. Your doctor will get things wrong. It's in the nature of biology. We don't understand everything and we're doing our best. That would be number one, educate people about the process so they trust it when people adjust their priors. In medicine, you are constantly adjusting your priors. And if you are not given the permission to do that, it's going to be confusing to people. They, they don't understand. This is back to judgment. We're applying our judgment. We don't have infinite knowledge. We have judgment based on our previous training and experience. So I'm going to get it wrong would be my first thing. But I suggest you listen to me because I have a lot of experience and I'm going to create a, I take a conservative position that you may not like, but I need to get you through this safely. That'd be number one. Number two, there was a great mistake, I think, in public health. He did not educate. See, I, when I was working, I was deep in the AIDS epidemic. That's why I got on radio was the AIDS epidemic. And we learned from the AIDS epidemic how to adjust health behavior. That was our big challenge. How do we get people to wear a condom? How do we get people to not have sex indiscriminately? The whole discipline developed about changing people's behavior. And here's how we did it. You create a relatable source, somebody you can relate to, a story about that source, a narrative, and then a consequence. So you can learn what happens as a result of the narrative that you're showing and throw in some humor and music so people can digest it. That's it. It's not what we've done during this pandemic, which is people in a box with a white coat going, shelter in place. I, I was astonished what we did. We threw out 30 years of knowledge about adjusting people's health behavior. I can't believe we did this. And we did it. 
And so I, I the whole time was screaming, this, this is not going to go well. This is not good. This is not how we do it. So I would then, in the leadership position, create campaigns where we had these funny, entertaining, interesting narratives so people could really understand what was going on here and hopefully adjust their behavior, whether it was about masks or distancing or vaccines. I would have a department essentially dedicated to doing that. And then I would educate about what happens if you get sick. Did you ever hear anybody talking about that? I, I did an Instagram series while I was sick because I, I want people to learn from what I did that kept me out of the hospital. And, and I had a very vivid experience with it. And I thought, oh, nobody, they don't understand this out there. We need to, the problem is not getting sick. The problem is overwhelming the hospital. And we should have been focused on that rather than this idea that we can prevent this thing from spreading, which was sort of a fool's errand as we discovered. I would focus on teaching people how to use telemedicine. I would expand telemedicine. And I would say, look, we've got these monoclonal antibodies. We have steroids. Talk to your doctor about these things. If you're not happy with the treatment you're getting, consult with another doctor. You can do it now. These medicines are available for free. The government bought them. And then on the heels of all of that, I would keep emphasizing that help is on the way. The vaccine's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And the, the piece they're not doing at this moment, which I would have started early, so much educational opportunities were missed that would have changed our relationship with this pandemic rather dramatically. So do you think we're better prepared for the next one? The next one. We are no doubt better prepared for the next one, just uh, our vaccine technologies. I mean, my God, we, we have leaped. There's been a giant leap forward with that. The people that were in positions of authority, what I have learned is that they seem unable to do a risk reward analysis. That's something I've not talked about. Uh, that's back to judgment. They just are, they don't seem to be able to do it. I mean, in medicine, you're constantly doing risk reward and they don't seem to understand the consequence of their choices and seem to just deny it. The other thing is that something happened to my profession that came out as a result of this epidemic, which is many physicians became unable to apply their judgment and improvise because it turns out we're all so locked in now to these corporate hospital structures. Uh, we're, we're sort of becoming employees of systems that have an authoritarian system from which orthodoxy is handed down and they don't feel free to improvise and use their judgment. I mean, my feeling is you have, have nurse practitioners and physician assistants do the work then. If you're just going to follow a pathway and not apply your judgment, we don't need doctors. So this has been a great concern to me. I, I hope other physicians see this, that we have got to shake ourselves free from some of this ossified structure that's preventing us from doing good medicine. So play a little game with us here. So fill in these sentences. Purpose is. Purpose is finding ways to serve others. And by purpose, I would consider purpose being meaningfulness or meaning. And we are meaning making machines and real meaningful meaning comes from others. So purpose is serving others or, or impacting others in a positive way. Leadership is. I'm going to use my inspiration word again. You, you, leadership is being inspired in your day-in-day -day operationalization of what you do and inspiring others. Success is. I'm going with the little, I'm laughing because things that are, that are, that are spontaneously coming out of me and hopefully an inspired way are cracking me up, but here goes success is freedom. If you're able to be free to be unencumbered and, and you have the proper caring, you can do a lot of things. I perform at my best when 
That's actually seems complicated to me because sometimes I perform at my best when I'm the most tired and the most frustrated. <laughs> I don't like performing then. That's the difference. I'd rather perform when I'm inspired and free, but I don't have to be in order to perform. I perform best when I have purpose, when, when I really understand why I'm doing it and why I want to do it, and, and I feel purposeful in it. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Drew, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today on the Brilliant People podcast. I know that our audience gains so much insight into topics that they care about. Thanks so much for joining us. That's the end of our show. If you found our insights valuable, we'd so appreciate you subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing the show online using the hashtag BrilliantPeopleAtWork. Tag us on social media at Assertitude and let us know what resonated with you, what you learned, or any inspiring insights you're going to start incorporating into your life. Check us out online at Assertitude.com. Until next time, stay brilliant at work and everywhere.